1 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 10, speaking of a woman named Hannah, it says that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli, he's the high priest, he observed her mouth. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due season, or in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name, will you say that with me? Samuel. For she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. When we begin a study on a biography in Scripture, it's rare that we get to go all the way back to the neonatal unit. Really, we're going back to the obstetrician. Samuel's not even born yet. We get a little preconception history of Samuel. And so tonight's message, although it's going to inaugurate the series on Samuel, it's really about his mom. It's really about a lady named Hannah. And because we didn't read the first nine verses, I'm going to give you a little background before we launch into the verses that we did read. Hannah is the first wife of a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah, in those days when you were married, and if your wife was not able to bear children, it was allowed for you to have another wife. And although she was the first pick and she was the original wife of Elkanah, Hannah could have no children. And so, in order to continue his posterity, he took another wife. Her name was Penina. And Penina was able to bear many children. And because of the family dynamic, you had a husband and his two wives. The first wife, Hannah, was the favored wife, the beloved wife. But Penina was the wife that was able to bear children. So, you had a natural hostility between the two women. Hannah seems to act in grace, but she was wounded and deeply troubled that she couldn't give her husband a son to continue the family name. Penina was a little bit more aggressive. She would insult and taunt and mock Hannah year after year. And so you had a, a dysfunctional family situation in a very distressed kind of circumstance. Because of that, Hannah was drawing closer to the Lord, but you can imagine the isolation that she had been living with. The thing that she wanted the most it was the thing that was being denied her. Now, you've probably had a season like that in your faith journey. 
You've probably gone through a time where you had so much going on that was good and right in your life, and yet this one thing that was so precious to you, for whatever reason, God was not granting it to you. And if you've carried that kind of weight long enough, it can be a a real challenge to your faith and your your confidence in the goodness of God. Now, I'm just going to tell you like it is. We'd never speak those words Yet God reads our heart as if it was an open script, and there are times we might wonder, Lord, I know you're good, but why are you not doing this good thing? And so Hannah had been living with that, and the Bible indicates in the first eight verses that it had been for quite some time, year after year, that she was going on and living in such a way. And so I want to go through these verses, and let's just see what she did. Let's see what she did because the time she was living in, as I painted the picture last week, was desperate times. There was no godly leadership in Israel. The country was drifting far from the Lord at a rapid pace. And there was no leadership at all to call people back to God. And so what Israel needed was a leader. And I'll just flash forward for you here before you get into the verses. Samuel was going to become that leader. Samuel, the baby who's not even born yet in these verses until the very end, Samuel is going to be the leader that would begin to restore Israel back to following the God of the covenant. And yet none of that would have happened had it not been for the groaning prayers of one woman, a mother desperate to receive a child from the Lord. So let's see how the scriptures unfold. Let me tell you three things about Samuel and his relationship with his mother, Hannah. First of all, Samuel was longed for by his mother. I want you to look in verses 10 through 19, and you're going to see how the scriptures show us that he was longed for by his mother. Now, this is not rock and science here. This is a mother's heart. This is like a Mother's Day message. Almost wish Amy was up here preaching it, because I got to do this theoretically. I'm not a mom. I don't play one on TV. I've never been a mom, but I'm going to go with the verses here, and we're going to see this, that her desire for a son was expressed in intense prayer. Look at verse number 10. She was deeply distressed. And the Bible says that she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah did not believe in the formality of prayer. Now, we're we're taught as Christians, well, you ought to pray, and many people pray, but a lot of people that pray, pray out of formality. They pray because it's the Christian thing to do. They were taught how to pray, maybe in a discipleship class or as a child, or maybe they picked up on it by watching the examples of others. But Hannah wasn't into this little categorized prayer. She wasn't going through the motions of prayer. This was a woman who was carrying a burden so hard on her heart, so heavily on her heart, that the Bible says when she was praying and she was at the temple in this scene, she was deeply distressed. This woman of God was not so spiritual that she was immune from pain, immune from anxiety, immune from being overwhelmed in her soul. She was deeply distressed, and so she took that distress, and she went straight to the throne with it. So that shows us right away she was a wise woman. Now, she couldn't talk to her sister wife, Penina, and she tried to talk to Elkanah earlier in the chapter, and he's a typical kind of, kind of dull guy. He's not getting it. He literally looked at his wife and he says this, am I not better to, the, to you than 10 children would be? You dummy, that's not what you say to a woman that wants a baby. He, he literally said, aren't I better to you than 10 children? I mean, what's she going to say? No. But, but the answer is no, you're not. I already have you. I'm asking God for a child. And so she had nowhere to go, and so when she had nowhere to go, she went to where we always need to go. She went straight to the Lord. Now look in verse number 11. Her sincerity was demonstrated with a very specific vow. I want you to notice the intensity of her prayer life. O Lord of hosts, 
If you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me. Look at what she's saying. Remember me, Lord. Forget not your servant. Give to your servant a son. And then she makes this vow. Then I will give him to you all the days of his life. And then she adds this footnote that no razor will will touch his head. Now, I want you to see the ache of her heart. In her prayer, before she gets to the specific thing that she's asking for, she actually unveils how she's feeling before the Lord. She's feeling forgotten. She's feeling ignored. She says, I want you to look upon me. It's as if she's saying, are you paying attention to me? And then she says, I I, I don't want you to forget me. You you need to remember me. Meet me where I am. And Lord, and then she gets to it. She says, I'm just asking you for a baby boy. Now, it's a very difficult time in those days and in that culture for a woman to be able to have no children. To be able to bear your husband a son in that patriarchal society was, was the greatest thing a woman could do. And in fact, women that couldn't do that were in fact scorned. Oftentimes, the, the closed womb would be taken as some kind of punishment from God for perhaps some sin that the woman had done. And there was a lot of erroneous thinking attached to a woman that couldn't give birth. And so, and on top of all that, she's just a woman with a natural maternal instinct saying, I just want a baby. I, I, see, I see a Penina with her however many children and, and feeding them and taking care of them. And they call her mommy and mom. And, 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 and Lord, I just want a child. And Lord, when you give me that boy, I'm going to give him back to you. And she expresses this vow very specifically. She says, he's going to be consecrated to you. And the outward um, manifestation of that consecration is that no razor will come against his hair. It seems to be akin to what we would later find out as a Nazarite vow. You remember Samson took the Nazarite vow where there were three things. You don't touch a dead body, you don't drink wine, and you you don't cut your hair. And so we don't know that it was exactly the Nazarite vow, but she did say the outward demonstration is that my son will be consecrated unto you. He will be distinct from all other men. We will never cut his hair. And so she makes this vow to the Lord. Now, the scriptures warn us against making rash vows. Matter of fact, I think it's Ecclesiastes chapter number five tells you when you go into the presence of the Lord, let your words be few because God's in heaven and you're upon earth. It says, don't be rash with your mouth, let your words be few. Uh, the writer of Proverbs would tell us that, or no, it's Ecclesiastes 2, that it's better not to make a vow than to make one and break it. But uh, Hannah is in a place where her heart is spilling forth and she's literally saying this, Lord, just give me a boy so I can honor you with him. Her heart's desire is to be favored and remembered by the Lord and to receive a child so that she's got to honor the Lord with him. Now, when we get into verses 12 through 16, there's a lot of verses there. You got the preacher who's watching this whole thing unfold. You got Eli the priest. He's just kind of sitting there. And Hannah is somewhere in the temple area and she's worshiping, or yeah, in, in, in the area and she's worshiping there. And she's praying in a way that her lips are moving, her tears are flowing but no sounds really coming out of her mouth. And so the preacher comes in there, and he wants to get involved in the thing. Eli's the priest, and he says, hey, what are you coming in here drunk for? I mean, it's a really kind of an audacious move by him. She's in one of the most consecrated, broken moments in his life, in her life, and this undiscerning clergyman comes in, and, and he says, why are you in here drunk? And that's where Hannah re- reveals a little bit more of her heart. It's actually being misunderstood by her sister wife, 
being misunderstood by her husband who says, aren't I better to you than, than ten sons or seven sons or whatever he said. And now she's misunderstood by the spiritual leader of Israel, Eli, and he's like, you're in here drunk. You need to get out of here. She's misunderstood by everybody. And so look at her response in verse number 12 uh, through 16. Well, actually, just look. It'll be up on the screen. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord, and I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. When I read verse, I don't care that she's a woman that lived 3,000 years ago. I can connect with that. I didn't live 3,000 years ago. I'm not female. I'm, I'm not a mom agonizing for a, a yet-to-be-granted child. But when I read a broken, transparent heart, I was like, I get you, sister. I know that feeling. She says, it's not that I've lost my faith. It's that I'm in the tension of my faith to the point, look at the words she uses. She says, I'm troubled. In our churches sometimes, we, we, we don't allow for Christians to be troubled because we've been taught erroneously somewhere along the line that if you really have faith, you're, you're, you never waver, you never struggle, you're never troubled. Well, I didn't graduate from that school, and, and I couldn't, because if that's the criteria to get a diploma and what it means to be a person of faith, then I've flunked the course. And, and if you're honest, so have you, because sometimes we're troubled in spirit. Sometimes we have to pour out our soul, and it's messy, and it's ugly, and maybe even irreverent, and you wouldn't want anybody like Eli eavesdropping on your prayer, but she was pouring out her soul before the Lord. And so many of us have been trained to suck it up and keep it in and, and, and tough it out and just kind of, you know, how you doing, brother? Oh, fine. All praise and glory to Jesus. And, you know, and we just use all these cliches, not Hannah. Hannah's getting in there and she's literally, she's vomiting out the, the things that are coming, that are stirring in her heart. And then she says, I'm, I've got, I'm anxious, I'm vexed. So you got vexation, you got anxiety, you got a troubled spirit, and you got a heart that needs to be poured out before the Lord. And that's the process through which a lot of amazing things happen. When you will come to that place in your life where you are so desperate that you don't care what it sounds like, you don't care if you're misunderstood by your spouse or your spiritual leaders or by your rivals even, and you get to that place where you, you, you can say in essence, Lord, this issue is solely between me and you, and I don't have any recourse other than to make it as raw as it is before you. I am struggling, I am overwhelmed, I am fearful, I am afraid, and I'm not going to fake it. And I love the fact that I have this example in my Bible because it frees me up to get like that in the presence of the Lord. Now, I will rarely get like that in your presence because you're not God. I, I don't think that I could trust everybody with that kind of transparency, but Hannah was able to say this to Eli, who was misunderstanding her. You're going to see why this is so important as we get towards the end of the, the passage. So go down into verses 17, 18, and 19. We're still talking about her longing for Samuel. He was longed for by his mother, and her longing was satisfied in flourishing faith. Now watch this. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way, she ate, and her face was no longer sad. They, she and her family, rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. 
Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah and Hannah were intimate, and the Lord remembered her. Now, just, just walk with me. This was not the first time Hannah prayed for this. Hannah had been waiting for years to receive this boy from the Lord, or at least some, a word of encouragement. We're, we can't find anywhere that she was ever encouraged towards the prospect of actually having a baby. So we're talking years of prayer and years in her mind of unanswered prayer. Years of, can we say it this way, of God saying no. No reason to hope, no reason to continue to pray. How many of us have been tempted where the no's kept coming and we can't bear the thought of asking again and not receiving, so we just stopped praying. But Hannah wasn't made of that kind of stuff. She just kept pressing in. And then on one day, one day at the right time in her brokenness, she is at the temple. She is going up for the sacrifices. She gets before the Lord. She pours her heart out. And God either gives Eli a word of knowledge or Eli is the representative priest of the people before the Lord. He says, the Lord has heard you and the Lord will grant your request. And then Hannah immediately recognizes the grace and favor that's on that moment. And she says, let the favor of, of the Lord be upon me. And watch this. That moment flipped something inside of her. Because she got up, and the Bible says her very countenance was different. Her face was no longer sad. And as a matter of fact, she went back to the meal, sat down, had a meal that she had apparently got up and left, went back to the meal, ate and drank, and then the next day the Bible says she worshiped the Lord. Now, nothing had changed outwardly. She had a word. She had an edifying prophetic word from the priest named Samuel, and something clicked in her. She believed the word spoken over her. She celebrated the Lord. She worshiped, and then her and Elkanah went back home and did the human part, and the baby would come. Now, friends, I, I don't know if, if so. We're often so tempted to just read through these narratives and not slow down and put ourselves in their sandals for a moment. We're talking 3,000 years ago. Years and years of unanswered prayer did not derail this woman from saying, I'm not going to quit asking you for this. And I know that you and I are both tempted at times where the thing that we want so badly that hasn't come yet, we don't want to face the fact that our only recourse is either to quit praying about it or to keep praying about it. And both of them kind of build a tension in us. We don't want to quit because we don't want to say we have no faith in God. But we also don't want to necessarily keep pressing into it because the answer has always been no up to this point. And so I'm just in of the mindset of if you're going to err, err in the side of being overconfident in God. Don't stand before the Lord someday and have to give an answer for why you were underconfident in him. I would rather say, God, I'm sorry, I expected you to do greater than all I could ask or think. Oh, by the way, Lord, I think that was in your Bible. I would rather give an answer for why I lent my heart to believe in God for something great in spite of what I was seeing, thinking, or feeling, rather than to stand before the Lord and to hear, if you had just kept praying, Jeff, the answer was right around the corner. Remember Daniel's example? 
when Daniel was interceding and praying and his answer did not come and he prayed and he fasted and he prayed and he fasted. And finally, when the messenger of the Lord, the angel came, this is the message from heaven. It's a behind the scenes look at how prayer sometimes works. Daniel, the day that you prayed, you were heard and the answer was coming, but the prince of Persia fought me to keep the answer from coming. And so there was a spiritual warfare element. Now, I don't know what you're praying for or what you might have quit praying for. All I'm saying is this, is that as Hannah had one thing that was being denied her, she just kept going for it. And in one moment of prayer, on a day on the calendar that was not announced with fanfare, there was no voice from heaven, this shall be the day, Hannah. It just didn't work that way. She just kept praying and she got more and more broken. She didn't play games with God. She was transparent. She was agitated. She was vexed. She was troubled. She didn't pretend to be otherwise. She got in the presence of the Lord. And on that day, God said, okay. Now be real careful here because a lot of us are are theologically driven. And I think that we need to be. But if your theology is teaching you that, uh, You really have to kind of twist God's arm behind his back or you got to drum up a good reason for God to be good to you. You've got bad theology. Friends, listen. Um, God never fears running out of blessing. Sometimes he intentionally delays answers because he wants to work something more deeply in us that is actually more valuable than immediately giving us the thing we've been asking for. There are things he works in the delays that have higher value than the actual thing he's going to give you. At other times, there is a spiritual warfare element. Here's the reality. We don't really know what's going on. We we just don't. So for me, it boils down. I'm just going to give you some practical pastoral counsel here. For me, it boils down to this. I can either quit praying or keep praying. I'm going to keep praying. Has God ever convinced me to stop praying about things and just given me a permanent no? A couple of times. A couple of times. And it was actually a relief to me, not an agony. And he'll give you the grace when he gives you the no. But those times have been very rare in my life. There have been some things that I prayed for for years that came years later. There have been other things that I prayed for that had he given them to me, then looking back I would have been like, thank you, Lord, thank you for not giving me what I was asking for. But at the time he was denying me, I was like, come on. Hannah just laid it all before the Lord. She cast all her care upon him, knowing that he cared for her. This was a mama's heart, praying very specifically for a son. So let's get down into verses 20 through 23. These are not verses that we we read. I think we read verse number 20, but not the rest of them. But Samuel was longed for by his mother, but he was also loved by his mother. Watch this. She regarded Samuel as a gift from God. Verse number 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bare a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The the name Samuel in Hebrew, and if we all were trained in Hebrew, and believe me, I don't have much training in Hebrew at all, but your Old Testament, this passage originally written in Hebrew, and there are some word plays in this passage that revolve around the the word, the root word for to hear, and then Samuel's name. Samuel's name sounds very much like the word that means heard of God. And so when she named him Samuel, she's referencing the fact that this boy that she now is holding in her hands, the boy who was conceived in prayer, the boy that she had been 
unable to hold or to name for many years while her rival sister wife just kept churning out babies and then taunting her because she was barren. Now she's holding Samuel at her breast and she's naming him and she recognizes this and she says, you've heard me. Lord, you heard me. She remembers the vow that she made. She, she remembers the whole agonizing process of longing for this child. And now that she has the baby, she gets to love him. And so she memorializes the process even in the name of Samuel. His name means or signifies heard of God. Every time she looked at him, she would say, I love you, son. And then she would say, I love you for hearing me, Lord. I love you, son. I love that you heard me, Lord. I love you, son. Thank you for hearing me, God. Remember her prayer? Don't forget about me. Look upon me. Remember me. And when the baby came, I can promise you this. She was very glad that she didn't stop praying. She regarded Samuel as a gift from God. I'm going to make a commentary here. Uh, I've had a couple of occasions recently to work with families who've been touched by a, a baby being conceived in less than perfect circumstances. Um, out of wedlock, a um, couple of different situations where there was no marriage covenant and yet there was a baby coming. And there's a lot of opportunity for confusion in that, especially with the grandparents of the child who has had the baby out of wedlock. I want to make some very dogmatic statements here. There is no such thing as an illegitimate child. No, there is illegitimate actions that lead to conception, but the child is a gift from God. No matter the circumstances through which that conception took place, God is sovereign. God is seen in Scripture as opening the womb and closing the womb. Every single baby is an intentional expression of the divine will of God. They have value. They are to be esteemed. And I'm not going to give a political commentary here, but one of the blights on our nation is that we don't value the life in the womb. And God gives life sovereignly. And so every baby is precious. And so when we're looking at, at, at less than holy circumstances, that result in the conception of a child, I would that every single one of us would stand in solidarity for the defense of the honor of the life of that child and say, mom and dad may have sinned by you know, unmarried fornication that brought about this child, but this child is gold deposited on earth by God Almighty, and we will value that child as such. This baby was deeply loved and valued by Hannah. So she made Samuel her priority. I love this. This is good. Verses 21 and 22. So the man Elkanah and all his house, they went up to offer to the Lord yearly sacrifice to pay his vow. But look at the words. But Hannah didn't go. Now check it out. Because on a sur surface reading, we're like, now Hannah, you made a vow to the Lord that that boy was going to belong to him. And now when it comes time to go up to offer the annual sacrifice, how come you're hanging back at the house? Well, watch this. This is beautiful. Hannah was going to fulfill her vow. That much we already know. You can read the passage, and we will here in a moment. She made a commitment to the Lord, but she also recognized that in those early years of Samuel's life, she knew that she wouldn't have very many years with him. 
We're going to find out up to the time of his weaning, which in that time was probably three to five years old. They would breastfeed a little bit longer because it was just nourishment for the child. But three to five years old. So Samuel, excuse me, Elkanah and his family would go up and Hannah would stay back home. It was about a 15 mile between Ramah and Shiloh where the, where the uh, sacrifices would be made. And so H- Hannah just held back. Now, l- let me just say a couple of things. What are we going to learn from that? Well, how can that help us at all? Is it a footnote? Listen, I think this note should be up on your screen. Hannah stayed at home to care for Samuel instead of making the pilgrimage to Shiloh for the three feasts each year. What are we going to learn from that? There is a lot of pressure and presumption upon mothers with small children to be everything to everybody. She's got to be the career woman. She's got to be the church lady. She's got to be a ministry guru. She's got to have the spotless house. She's got to have the the list of to-dos done. Uh, She's got to make her husband look good. She's got to do all of this. And by the way, she needs to be smiling while she does it all, keeping her hair picturesque and her makeup to a T and her figure such and such and all of this stupid, I know I'm not supposed to say stupid in the pulpit, but I'm going to do it again, all this stupid expectation on women, period, but especially in that season where she's grooming these precious little savages. I mean, they are. They're just precious, they're cute, they're sweet, but I mean, they're not saved yet. They're just, they're wild. They're, they're Tasmanian devils that you can't put a collar on. I mean, they're just, they're just crazy, they're rambunctious. And if, even if they're mild-tempered, they're still constant need. And so Hannah doesn't even go up for the main sacrifices. You didn't get much more expectation religiously than that. You ought to go up for the sacrifice because that's what we do as Hebrews. We go up and we make our sacrifices. And I love the fact that she said, you know what? The sacrifices can go on without me. God knows my heart. I don't care what anybody else says. My priority right now is this precious boy that the Lord has given me. And she said no to everything else. I'm going to give you a quick word, especially if you're a mom or you're responsible for small children. That season Uh, is not valued in our culture for women. You're not going to be valued by mainstream American um, feminism for saying no to other things and pouring into children. It's not going to make the front page of any newspaper or, or, you know, the index page of any website. Wow, a woman stays at home to feed her children and change diapers or carpool. It's just not there. Um, They only have one mom. And you can't do it all. You're not going to be able to do everything well. You're going to have to say no to something. My prayer for you is that you will find the the desire to say no to the things that you can either get to later in life or the things that you may never need to get to. And you prioritize these little ones. Even here, this is a pastor saying this, even church stuff. Even church stuff. I don't think that there's any glory in, in, in a woman pouring herself into ministry while her kids are kind of sidelined. I just don't, forgive me if that's offensive, I, I just don't think that's good. And, and I can tell you, your leadership here doesn't, doesn't agree with that either. If we see that happening, we've had times where we've taken a family aside and say, hey, you need to just scale back and, and just focus on the kids for a little while. Um, 
I love the fact that we, if all things continue smoothly, we have later years where our responsibilities to our children may not be as demanding. And it's in those years where you're seasoned and you can pour into other young mothers and things like that. But listen, when they're little, go ahead, sister. Say no to some things. The world will not stop spinning, I promise you. The kingdom will carry on without you being at the top of your game during that season. And I love the fact that Hannah did it. And listen, she didn't ask anybody's permission. She told Elkanah, hey, I'm going to hang back. And Elkanah just looks at her and says, the Lord be with you. What a great man. He didn't guilt trip her. He didn't say anything. He just took the rest of the brood up to the temple and they did their thing. So look in verse number 22 and 23. Let me check the time here. She desired Samuel to serve the Lord. This is the, the counterbalance to what I just said. She said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Go, dude, that is so good. Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him only then may the Lord establish his word. I just love the family dynamic between Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. She said, I'm going to wean him. I haven't forgotten about my vow to the Lord. I'm going to take care of business. And I love the fact that he was her husband and not her daddy. He didn't treat her like a child. Well, bless God, you better pack your bags and pack mine while you're at it. We're going to go up and you're coming with me, woman. He trusted his wife's discernment about what the Lord would do. And by the way, I would just say that to all of us who are blessed with women, wives that, that have discernment of the Lord. Um, she actually will see some things that, that you don't sometimes, brother. And if you're smart, you're going you're gonna to foster that and nurture that. Don't be intimidated by that. I thank God that Amy is more in tune with the Lord in, a, in several areas than I am. She sees some stuff that I don't see coming. And in the early days of our marriage, I was a little intimidated by that, but I also tried to compete with it. Now I'm just like, I look at her and it's like, you see anything I'm not seeing? Because I, I don't, I don't want to do this. You see anything? I check in with her. And Elkanah, Elkanah here says to her, she just says, I'm not going up, but when he's weaned, I'm going to go up and I'm going to pay my vow. And Elkanah just looks at her and he says, you do what seems best. I trust your discernment. I think that that is a good idea. Let me just give you this. What is she talking about doing here? She's talking about dedicating Samuel at the time of his weaning to full-time service in the temple. Full-time service in God's work. She's literally saying, I've surrendered them in my heart, and I know the day is coming while I have to turn loose with, of them with my hands. And I won't pretend to be a mama on this. As a dad, that's a hard thing to consider. As a mom, I would imagine it's three times as hard or more. Because there is a bond between a mother and a, a child in, in a healthy relationship that is very distinct from that of a father and a child. A mother, I, it's so funny, forgive me for weaving in my family story in this, I hope it doesn't bother you, but these flashes come into my mind. I don't worry about my boy. I look at him and I'm like, he's going to get busted up, he's going to get hurt. I remember when, when he was four and I, I think I was flipping him on the couch and he's cackling and spinning around and Amy walks in and she's all panicky and I'm just like, hey, we're just, you know, this is what guys do. And, and I remember telling her, 
He will break bones in his life. You just need to be prepared for that. And a few years ago, he broke an arm in karate. And I remember just, and I'm just like, yeah, let's go put a cast on it. He'll be fine. And he was. So I'm very different with Landon. She's, she's all over him. She's, she's got her mom radar out because he's, he's in those preteen years. And she, I, I hear every now and then, now, Landon, let me tell you about a certain type of girl that you want to stay away from your whole life. And so she's, and, and I'm like, come on, he's a guy. He's going to be fine. And she's like, yeah, I got this one, Jeff. I'm like, oh, okay, do what seems best unto you. And so, but with Alicia, daddy radar goes off. And so with my 16-year-old, I'm trolling, man. I mean, I am out there and uh, uh, counseling her on boys and all that. It's just amazing to me that, that um, a mother's heart with a son and a daddy's heart with a girl, and the thing is, is that, you know, our, our protective nature, we just want to protect our kids from hurt and harm. I'm going to tell you one thing you should never, ever try to protect your kids from. Don't protect your kids from serving God. Do not protect your children from serving God. God's plans for your children exceed you. They actually involve you, but they go beyond you. And your child and my children, they are vessels set not for the glory of mom and dad, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so God has a plan for their lives that will require at some point, and it's usually progressive, it's incremental, we have to keep releasing them over and over again. And so look at what she does here. In verse number 23, she nourished him while she could. Now this is all under the heading of loving, being loved by his mother. She regarded Samuel as a gift. She made Samuel her priority. She desired Samuel to serve the Lord, and then she nourished him while she could. Verse 23, the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. They didn't have bottles. They didn't have Similac. They didn't have anything, any other way to nourish the kids back then other than breastfeeding. And although it's a little sensitive, come on, we're, we're grown-ups, and this is not sensual. This is maternal. It's, it's, it's good. The breastfeeding pictures that intimate nourishment of the child during that God-appointed time period. Um, she knew that her time was limited, and the, the, the fact that she would nurse Samuel while she could, it, it speaks more than just physically, more than just physically nourishing him. She, she's saying, I want you at my breast, near my heart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour everything I can into you, because I know there's coming the day where I won't be able to have you like this anymore. So she's taking advantage of that season. A lot of us would say, man, I missed that season in my child's life, or I wish I had known then what I know now, and it could have been better, it could have been different. And this is not about guilt at all. This speaks to the bigger picture of when we are releasing our children, and maybe you've got grandchildren, some of you've got great-grandchildren, maybe even some of your great-great ones, and God bless you, that's awesome. But it speaks to a bigger picture of the fact that, man, even something as precious and what would seem permanent to us really doesn't belong to us. Even our kids, even our kids are not meant for us to keep control and own. We steward them and then we release them. And ultimately we pour in what we can, but that season comes to a close and I'm not there yet. Somebody 
sign me up for counseling when that day comes. But at some point, you have to take a step back. I did a wedding just a couple of weeks ago from a dad that loved his firstborn, and I, I officiated the ceremony, and dad wept and wept and wept at the, at the uh, rehearsal. And I, I joked with him, he's a good friend of mine, and I said, hey man, write down everything you're feeling, because I'm going to need it in about five or six years. I really, and I meant it. I was like, you're going to have to help me, bro. But at some point, you have to step back, and you have to say, I have done everything that I can, and child, I'm here for you to the degree that you want me, but ultimately, you're accountable to the Lord now. Some of you parents have had that awful season of, of, of watching your children make horrible decisions, contrary to the way you raised them. And it, there is the potential for so much guilt in your life, and maybe sometimes your kids messed up because they pattern themselves after your mistakes instead of after your virtues. At some point, you have to let the grace come and cleanse you and recognize that the, God's done with yesterday. He's about the present moment and what happens after that present moment, and his hands are not tied. And so just because you have the baby doesn't mean that you stop praying for the baby. I don't think we should ever stop praying for our kids and our grandchildren. And Hannah knew she had the season. Now let me finish this message. Our time's almost gone. He was longed for by his mother. He was loved by his mother. And then at the end of this passage, he was loosed by his mother. Uh, look down in verses 24 through 28. We, we didn't read these, so I'll just parse them out here a little bit. Hannah recognized when her time with Samuel was complete. Here it comes. This is a little heartbreaking because he's only about probably three to five years old. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an F of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Now look at these words. And the child was young. This mom had prayed for him longer than she had gotten to keep him. Her prayer season just to get him likely exceeded the amount of time that she actually got to keep him as her son. And now came that time of keeping her vow to the Lord. The Bible does not indicate that she remotely wavered. It does not give any indication that she had second thoughts. Best we can tell, she made her vow, she received the answer to her prayer, she kept her vow and never looked back. But understand this, emotionally it could not have been easy. There's two things in that verse, or those verses I just read. The first is the element of sacrifice. So when the time came, he's weaned she knows it's time to go back up to the place where she had made the vow and to release him, but she went with sacrifice. She went to worship. She worshiped when she asked for the boy, and she worshiped when she had to surrender the boy, when she had to lose him. And so she worshiped. She took a bull, which is not a small sacrifice. She took an ephah of flour, so she was going to do a meal offering of some sort. And then she took the flagon of wine, the, the skin of wine, which she would have poured out as a drink offering. All three of these indicate a heart that is still consecrated to the Lord, even in the midst of having to turn loose of something that was very precious to her. And that's exactly what she did. She had sacrifice, and then she had surrender. She left him there, and the child was young. She literally presented him to Levi. And, and let's remember what the Bible said. I, mean, I like to visualize this stuff. I don't want this just to be kind of like fables or just words on paper. He's a little long-haired three- to five-year-old. He never had a haircut. 
Remember, that was part of the vow. So he's this little boy. Let's just make him in kindergarten, okay? Pre-K. He's a pre-K kid. And he's got this long hair. And this mother has poured into him everything she could because she knew the clock was ticking. She knew she only had a limited time. And by the way, we all only have limited time with each other. Spend it wisely. Spend it wisely while we can, not just with our kids, but with each other. And she takes him up, and she turns him over to Eli the priest, and then she has to go back home. Now, it wasn't that she never saw him again, because she did. She got to go up to the house of the Lord annually, and she would see him, but her primary role was over. She kept her vow. She turned him over to the Lord And the Bible gives no other indication other than that she did it with a spirit of worship and trust. So I want to learn from her. This is not a Mother's Day message. This is a right now, male or female, young or old, help me Jesus message. Because this is about turning loose of what God has said and now it's time to, it's about trusting him as we surrender the things that are the most precious to us. So she gave God the glory for her child. Look in verses 26 and 27. So Eli is there, and it's been a few years, so he doesn't necessarily remember Hannah. And look what she says. She says, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. And she points to her little son, and she says, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made unto him. Even in that, what had to have been a difficult moment, of turning loose of her boy, she's making sure that spoken all over this kid, he's surrounded by the atmosphere of sacrifice and worship. And then some of the last words that he hears his mom say is, I'm turning him over to you and I want to give God the glory. Think about that influence from her. He only had, let's say, four or five years with his mom. This boy, this pre-K kid, is going to become the most powerful man in Israel in years to come. And I'm going to make a bold statement. It never would have happened apart from his mother's consecration unto the Lord. Never. It didn't happen through his dad. It happened through his mama. And that mom in five years poured enough into Samuel that while, and you'll see this later in this story, not tonight, but in a different message, as Eli's leadership was fading, Samuel's discernment started coming alive while he was still, he started hearing God for himself. He first heard God through his mother for the first few years in his life, but when she was removed from the scene, Samuel began to hear the voice of the Lord for himself. There's no greater legacy that we can leave our kids with that we, we spoke on behalf of God while they were young, and as they got older, they didn't need us to speak as much because they were hearing him for themselves. Last verse, and I'm done. She gave God her child for his glory. She gave God the glory for her child. Then she gave God her child for his glory. And as long as he lives, she said to Eli, I give him to the Lord. He's lent to the Lord. Samuel was Hannah's gift back to God as he was God's gift to Hannah. That is the essence of all that we have in life, including our kids. That we're not given anything to keep. Doesn't that stun our pride? Everything I have, I've been lent. Everything I have, 
God said, I'm going to let you steward this. It feels like mine, but in theological reality, none of it is. And if we can learn to live like nothing really actually sovereignly belongs to us, then when it's time to surrender and let it loose, we can be worshipers as we do that too. We can say, you're perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in all of your ways to us. And we can give him the glory when it's time to receive and it's time to release. And so as I think about this woman, and again, this is a springboard to the rest of Samuel's life, and I'm done. I wonder what God is ready to birth in your prayer life as you refuse to quit. She didn't quit. She did not say, God, give me a son who will be the judge over Israel, the primary influence on the godliest king, King David, that the world ever, or Israel ever knew. She didn't pray that. She just said, give me a boy. And if you give me a boy, I'll give him back to you, and you can do whatever you want to do with him, but give me the boy. And when she received from the Lord and then released it back to the Lord, God said, that's something I can bless. And Samuel is somebody we're talking about 3,000 years after Hannah knelt down and said, God, remember my prayers. As you pray this week and as you refuse to give up, maybe I sense this, I actually sense it tonight. Some of you go back and pick up prayers that you dropped off. I think the Lord's inviting us to resume praying for things that we gave up praying on. I want to encourage you, unless he told you stop praying about it, maybe just receive this. Keep asking him. Start asking him again. And as we do so, just maybe, God might mark that prayer and say, because she didn't quit, because he picked back up where he left off, here's what I'm going to do. You won't know it until you resume praying about it.